Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. In this new series, Unwrapping Christmas, we recognize it's that time of year to unpack the boxes and trim the tree. What if this year we could go beyond the boxes to experience something even greater? What if we actually expected Jesus to show up? So let's unwrap Christmas together and turn now to the first part of our series, Christmas Decor. Let me see, uh, by the raising of hands, how many of you have already decorated this weekend? Anybody decorated your house? I thought there would be a few in here, uh, at least a few. How many of you decorated? Uh, okay, so a lot of people do it yesterday or maybe Friday, right after, right after Thanksgiving. How many of you did it like a week ago? Anybody have it done a week ago? All right, we got a few in here. How many did it two weeks ago? Any two weeks ago? My goodness, we can have two. Anybody do it a month ago? <laughs> so there, there are some who did that. Now, now, this is the time of year, as you could tell, you know, I don't know if some of your houses still look like this. We decided not to put up all the decorations yet, like put them away, because I figured some of your places probably still had boxes out, something like this. You haven't quite decided where the wreath needs to be hung or how you're going to put it up. So, you know, our houses kind of look like this, but this is the season where we're unpacking. We're getting back into our attics. We're getting in our basements. We're digging out the boxes, dusting them off, doing all that stuff, and we're unpacking Christmas, like bringing it back into our homes and our lives. And so we get all the boxes down, and here's the thing. Sometimes you get those boxes down, you're excited about it, and sometimes you're not. How many are on the not side of things? Anybody in here not excited? Got a few of you on the not excited things. That's okay. That's okay. I, I understand it. You know, we've got some of those who are excited. We got some. And, and I know there are some of you who really aren't excited because as quickly as I found Savannah's post, I found another post too. That's right. And I wasn't ashamed to pull it up uh, and show it to you this morning. This was a response quote, actually. Uh, Savannah, you're tagged in this one. I, I think you probably saw it. This is by our very own Grinchy Grinch, Amy Wilkie, in the back row over there. Uh, <laughs> watching my neighbor put up Christmas lights while I still have pumpkins rotting on my porch. Uh, that's great. Are those pumpkins still there, Amy? That's the only question I had this morning. Are they gone? Oh, you guys took them. A- a- yeah, I got you. Pam and Amy, or Pam and Savannah came and got them. Somebody please hug uh, Amy before she leaves today. She needs it. Uh, she needs some of that. Now, I realize we are all over the place when it comes to sort of our excitement levels and where we are in the spirit and the decoration and all that. And Amy, I just want you to know you are not alone, right? You're not alone in this, whatever it may be. The anticipation of a season like Christmas or really any season at all, when we have this sort of buildup of anticipation, it can take it out of us. And we get tired of it after a while, and it just drains us, and it's more hassle than it is good. And on the one hand, uh, sort of the, the buildup of excitement, it can, it can be really exhilarating, right? For example, at the end of this year, that 10 seconds right at the end of the year, the countdown, 10, 9, and the ball is dropping, that's exciting. There's an excitement to that waiting. Your first kiss, there's an excitement there that's exhilarating unless you land it on her nose or forehead or whatever. Like, then it's just embarrassing. But generally, it's exciting and exhilarating. These things that you wait for, they're exciting. Waiting for the perfect cookie to come out, 15 minutes, you know. Some of you apparently waiting in the line at Chick-fil-A for even an hour is exciting. Not sure why. You could go down to Shelby and back and be, have your Chick-fil-A rather than wait in the line here. But whatever, it's exciting to do that. But, but I understand that not all waiting is exhilarating. Sometimes waiting uh, is actually the thing that sort of takes it out of you. 
Sometimes it's the thing that just drains you altogether, right? And I'll tell you what's not worth the wait. You know what's not worth the wait? Waiting for a web page to load on DSL. Not worth the wait. That is just, that's not worth the wait at all. I didn't need, I don't even know what I was doing when I started loading the web page, but it's not worth it. It is, but I know it takes a really, really long time to wait. I would just rather eat chicken, right? There's no reason to shove birds inside of one another in order to produce some but it's not worth the wait at the end of the day to do that. And I would say waiting for McDonald's, not worth the wait. If McDonald's had the same line that Chick-fil-A did, none of you would be waiting that line. Nobody would do that. It's just not worth the wait. You look at those little chicken things and don't even know how they were made, and you're like, probably not worth it. I don't want to do that. In fact, I know a few of you, you, you might have gone through this season of building a home or something like that, and it just kept going and dragging and dragging and dragging, and you're like, I don't know if it's really worth it. Right? And there's a couple reasons why things become not worth it. On the one hand, it's a value statement, right? It may not be valuable for me to wait this long. Like, think about the value of a chicken McNugget and what it's actually going to do to my body. It's really not worth the wait, right? So there's a value. It's just not very valuable at the end of the day. But there's another kind of this waiting, this waiting that thinks that, that leads us to assume it's not going to happen. Right? And that's, that's the more detrimental waiting. The one where it's like, it's not really valuable. Well, you can take it or leave it. But the other one where we don't think it's going to happen, like this happens sometimes when you're building a home. I just don't know that these builders are ever going to accomplish the task that's in front of them. It's going to be completed on time. It'd be nice if it worked out. But this right here, this type of waiting right here, this is really the place that I think so many of us, not just in Christmas, but really just so many of us are right now in our lives. We're in that space right there where we're just not sure if the waiting is worth it. We've been in this season, for us in this world that we're living in, we've been in a season of waiting for so, so long, we don't even remember what we're waiting for anymore. Like, what are we waiting for? What are the the clues that can tell us we can get back to normal life? What are the, the boxes that need to be checked? We're not sure what they are anymore, where we need to go, or how we can launch back into it. And if we can remember, here's the more detrimental part, we just don't even think it's worth it. It's not even worth the wait. Who cares if we get back? Who cares if it goes on? I don't, I don't have any joy. I'm, not, I'm not, not living into that anymore. And the waiting game, what I think has happened, it's led us to this sort of general sense of aimlessness in our lives. We feel uninspired. We've, we have difficulty finding joy in things that we used to find joy in. And as it turns out, there's a word for this. There's a word that comes up, and my wife actually introduced me to this word a few months back. It's called languishing. As a society, we are languishing. Now, this was kind of advanced and put out there by an organizational psychologist by the name of Adam Grant. He wrote a New York Times article about it. He did a TED Talk on it. But he started looking at this, this word. And, and really what it is, it's this, this general sense of meh, right? You know that emoji that just has like the straight line across it? That's what this is. It's just meh, right? That's where we are as a society. It's not I'm really low. It's not I'm really high. I'm just kind of like meh whatever. I just don't have the joy that's there anymore. And, and as it turns out, Adam, Adam Grant started looking into this and trying to dis- discover what it was. And when he looked around, like many of you have done during the pandemic, he started noticing that the work ethic of the workforce had really gone down. And he was confused about this as he looked out at it because he said, it's not really burnout, right? It's not that people don't have energy anymore. They still have the energy that they used to have. They're not drained of the energy. That's not it. It's not depression, right? Because joyless. They just feel aimless. They just feel uninspired. And the word that he would use is languishing. It's this emotional response. And for him, of course, he's like, we just need to name it what it is. It helps people just to be, how's your day going? And you could be like, I'm languishing. So now you have a tool. You can go out of here and say that to people whenever they ask you how your day is. It's not 
Because when you're languishing, it feels like you're muddling through your days, looking at your life through a foggy windshield. I love that word picture, right? Just, just dragging my feet, digging through the mud, and I can't really see what's in front of me. I'm just rolling through my... Anybody felt that way? For those of you who didn't uh, raise your hand, let me introduce you to this concept. It's called languishing. Uh, now, for those of you who didn't laugh at that, you really are deeply in it. That was a good joke right there. <laughs> that was a great joke, in fact, right? But this is, this is languishing about this season that we're in, the season of Advent, the season where we enter in anticipating something that's coming. The light has come. The Christ child has come. The coming Messiah is here. The hope is realized. I think it's really important to start out Advent in this way. It's important to remember that there is a time in our history where people weren't remembering that the Christ child had came. They were hoping for him to come. There's a group of people in our history that did not live with the realization that you and I live with, that um, that the Christ child is born, that the Messiah is here. Like They're not remembering that reality. They're just hoping every single day that they can get into it. And, and in all honesty, that's why I think we start Advent out with this understanding of hope. We need to tap back into lived under the weight of hope. And I do mean the weight of hope, because hope sometimes we think is this great thing, but in reality, hope can become a burden to our life as well. To have to live under it day after day and to live into it over and over. And, and sometimes we misconstrue touching, back, uh, touching base with the prophet, looking back at what they said and saying, oh, isn't it neat? This proved that Jesus was coming. Right? And I don't think that's really what's going on. I think we look back at the prophets, because the prophets are people who could speak the word of God, in hope, not in reality. They could speak God's word into this world and God's will for this world, not in reality, not of what they saw, but in hope of what would be. And they lived into that hope over and over again. And part of that may, you know, for me, part of hearing their words is important, but another part of looking back at all those who lived in hope is not just to see the ones who got it right, but to see the ones who struggled with it. Because you and I, we struggle with it. We struggle with that reality. We struggle under the weight of it. And, you know, for many of us who are here in this space, yes, we hear the word hope, but we just don't know if our hope's ever going to be realized. And the good news of Scripture is that there are individuals who are living in that same space. There are individuals who are living under the weight of hope, who have fallen into an aimlessness, who have fallen into a joyless state, who are languishing, just like you and I. In fact, in Luke's gospel, what we heard just a few minutes ago, Luke chooses to start his gospel with one of these individuals. He starts his gospel out by pointing us to an individual who, who isn't living on top of the world. Anna the prophet, who he'll get to a little bit later, she's living on top of the world. All right? she's, she's gone into the temple every day. She's that excited one that annoys us to death. You know, When you see her coming around, she's like, yay, this is so wonderful. Jesus is coming. They're like, there's crazy Anna the prophetess over there. All right, that's who she is. But Luke doesn't start with her. He actually starts with this individual who just doesn't believe it. Zechariah is just going through the motions day after day, and he's lived under the weight of this hope so long, it just seems sort of aimless. It doesn't seem like it's ever going to happen. And in verse 5, after this brief introduction, we get introduced to Zechariah. And of course, Luke is writing an orderly account, so it's all the more interesting that he chooses to start with Zechariah. Zechariah, who wasn't completely sure that this season would ever come, that it was coming. He'd heard stories all of his life. He had been the one who set up the empty chair in his house every Passover for Elijah. And guess what? Elijah never came. Right? He sat there in anticipation of this reality, but the reality never came forth. He had heard stories all his life, 
and yet the chair remained empty, his hope didn't actually get fulfilled. And so by the time we get to Zechariah in his life, Zechariah is actually an old man. And he's still serving in the temple. He's still doing his faithful duty. He's going every single day. He's faithful to his service. But here's the problem in his faithfulness. He's lost hope in his service. He's faithful. He does the things that he needs to do. But he no longer has hope in the service that's laid before him. He, has no, long, he no longer has any sense of meaning or purpose or another sort of broad term that we might use. There's no magic to it, right? There's nothing magical about being in this environment. He just does the thing he's supposed to do, and he goes through the motions all day, every day. He's completely lost the joy that's supposed to be incorporated with his hope. And then one day, everything changes. By the time we get to verse 8, custom the priesthood, he would enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now, this is the first step to the magic place, but by lot, by chance, he was chosen to go into the holy of place, holy of holies. Right, he's chosen to go in and to burn incense and to offer this up before God. Now, he's not necessarily expecting anything. And as we see it through the story, we can kind of get a glimpse that he's not expecting anything to happen. Even though within the context of this place, this is where God rests. Like This is the holiest place in all the earth. God's presence should be in this room. He should have expected to encounter God in that room. That's what he should have expected. But he didn't. And on this occasion, something changes because God does appear and it does startle him. Look at what happens in verse, verse 11. Verse 10 says the whole congregation's outside praying. Verse 11 says, Then there he appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right-hand right side of the altar of incense. This was the realization of his hope. God's presence is manifest. The spokesperson for God is in that moment. Now in our world, what this would look like. The pandemic is over, right? Life goes back to normal. Everything is different. We can resume life as it was. No questions asked. That's what it is. This, his hope is realized in this space. This is the moment he was hoping for. This is the moment where he would encounter God. Whenever you see an angel, you see a messenger who's going to deliver to you the words of God. That's why the angel is there. If you're in the holy place where God dwells, you want to hear from God, this is the way you hear from God. And Zechariah has this moment. The problem is, is that priests have gone into this place over and over and over throughout centuries, and nothing happened. They've gone into that place over and over expecting, and it never happened. And Zechariah had grown weary of this. I mean, you know, we go into this place, and we wear bells on the bottom of our robes just in case somebody dies. And I'm disappointed. Nobody's died in 100,000 years, right? Nothing, nothing's happened. <laughs> Nobody's encountered God in this way where they could experience the presence of God. They haven't seen this. And Zechariah is in the same place until this moment. He comes in and he's not expecting anything. And we know he's not expecting anything because in verse 12, it says he was terrified. It says he goes into this place and when Zechariah saw him, the angel, he was terrified and fear overwhelmed him because he wasn't expecting it. And this is what happens. Sometimes in our lives, this, this is a real thing that you and I encounter. Where we've been living under the weight of hope and our expectations have never been met, that when our expectations are fulfilled, we get scared about it. We get scared that that reality is even in front of us. The way I would say it is this. Fear can take over in spaces where expectations arrive in unexpected ways. Right? Yeah, sure, we, at one point in time we expected this to happen, but now it's happening. And, oh, whoa, 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 I don't want to do this. Are you sure? Didn't you say that this is what you wanted? Didn't you say that you wanted to live in this way? Didn't you say you wanted to do this? When fear, or when, when expectations have been going on and on and on and they, and they finally get met, fear sort of takes over. And this is what happens to Zechariah. But the angel quickly comforts him in verse 13. The angel says to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayers have been answered. 
Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. Zechariah's like, that was my prayer like 50 years ago. And that ain't my prayer today. I don't know what you're talking about, right? That was, that was then, not now, but, but whatever. He says, your prayer has been answered. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John, a prophet of God, a prophet who will come to your home and who will pave the way for Christ. And the angel goes on in the next verse. You will have something that you've not had, Zechariah. You'll have joy. You'll have gladness. The joy that's been stripped out of your life because you've been living under this season of languishing. You'll have joy and gladness and many of joy. And the angel says, this is the space where once again you'll have joy. It'll come over you. You'll remember and be happy. And this is how Zechariah responds. You could have came around the side. How do I know that this is true? I'm an old man. I don't know if you know that, but that doesn't work in my household, right? And he gets on. I love, the Bible always has a unique way of saying this. He's like, I'm an old man. My wife, she's getting up in years, right? Somehow they just shift the language just a little bit as you go forward. She's getting up in years, and the languishing in this moment just sort of jumps out of his mouth. I don't believe you. It's too late. I've been waiting so long. This isn't going to happen. It's never going to happen. Zechariah just had that, meh. No, I don't think so. And he goes on, and I love, <laughs> I love Gabriel's initial response. He's just like, uh, I'm Gabriel. Right, that's it. <laughs> it's like, do you not do you not get this? That's who I am. Like I, you've probably heard stories about me. I sit at the right, at, at at God's uh, throne room. Like that's where I'm at. Right, I'm Gabriel. That's who I am. That's why you should believe this. I stand in the presence of God all the time, and I've been sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And Zechariah is in such a fog in this moment that he can't even recognize the messenger of God who's in front of his face. The messenger who brings him the hope, he can't even recognize it because of all that's going on. And sometimes we get in that same space where there's so much fog around us, so much fog in our own lives and our own lack of hope that we can't even see God speaking to us when God's speaking to us right in front of us and our faces. We don't know the messenger of God when he's right there in front of us. But because he doubts, Gabriel would go on and say, but you know what? Because you didn't believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you'll become mute. You're not going to be able to speak until the day that these things occur. Now here's, let me just pause right here. A general reading of this, and I do this as, as well. Whenever I read this, it's really easy for me to see this as punishment from God on Zechariah. Right? That's, that's what I go to. Some of us, I'm sure it would feel like punishment if we weren't able to talk for an extended period of time. Others of you, you would welcome that reality. I'm not sure where you fall on that. But I think generally when we see this happening, we find that this is a punishment. But instead of seeing it as a punishment, I want to invite you into a new space to think about this this morning. I want us to think for just a moment as this is God's way of helping Zechariah overcome a season of languishing. You know, Adam, Adam Grant, as I mentioned earlier, this psychologist, he says there is actually a way of overcoming languishing in our lives. And he uses the word, which is a word that's developed by an Asian, Asian psychologist, he uses the word flow. In order to overcome languishing in our lives, we have to restore flow in our lives. We have to, it's kind of like, you know, if the dam, uh, the water gets dammed up, you've got to in some way open that dam and get the water flowing again in your life. That, that's kind of what he's getting at. And in order to restore flow, there are really three conditions behind that. You have to develop mastery, mindfulness, and you have to develop more flow, and you overcome languishing. And I think that this, is, this silence that settles upon Zechariah is at least one way 
of God helping him pull out of that season of languishing that he was in. The silence settles into his life, and when it settles into his life, it unclogs the dam that is there, and it starts to restore flow in his life. And here's how it does it. There's there's these three ways. In seasons of languishing, I believe that silence ignites focus, and focus starts to produce mastery. Zechariah didn't have right, the distraction of his own voice. He didn't have the distraction of conversation. He just rested in silence. He had to focus. The focus for your life doesn't have to be the big picture focus. You don't have to have the huge picture in mind and focus in and figure out all that's going on there. One small goal that you just focus on, just honing in on the one small thing in your life, finding the small wins. In fact, I hope she doesn't mind. Greta, you're probably at home watching this this morning. But Greta told me this wonderful story. Greta Harris, for those who don't know her, she started baking bread in the pandemic on the other side of not, us not being able to have communion here. She discovered how to make bread and live into it. And as she told me, the first batch, not so good. Didn't turn out all that great. Right? But she kept focusing on that and living into that. And, and she found the ability to bake this bread. And she handed a starter batch off to my wife and I. And we were able to make this bread. And she was able to master that through one small goal. Focusing in on the one small win, not the big wins. And in our lives, sometimes we need that level of focus that leads us to master certain things. It could be something small in your life that you want to master and overcome. And and it could be many different things, but we need to find those small wins. And a close partner to mastery and focus is that second tool, mindfulness. In seasons of languishing, silence leads us to mindfulness, thinking deeply about things. And if we're going to focus, and that's going to lead us to mastery, then we need to give ourselves some uninterrupted time in our lives. There's an interesting thing that happened. For for Zechariah, Zechariah falls into silence, and he's got a lot of uninterrupted time. Nobody's talking to him anymore. Nobody's coming to him anymore. He just sort of sits in this uninterrupted space where he can be wrapped up in full mindfulness. But for us in our world, when the world shuts down, I know at first many of us were trying to figure out what to do with our time, right? Where I can't do anything. But what ended up happening is we started filling it with as much as we could, particularly digitally, right? A lot of people started filling their lives digitally at this moment. And so they would have like, you know, a phone in one hand and TV on and maybe the radio on the background and then an iPad over here with a game and you're kind of flipping through like 14 things going on at once, all so that you can ignore other things that are going on in your life. And there's no direct concentrated focus. There's no space for mindfulness and uninterrupted time. And if we're going to overcome languishing in our lives, reproduce flow in our lives, then at some point in time, we just need to return to the one thing that's important. We just need to focus in on the one thing. I told you that in Zechariah's life, Zechariah just landed her and living into that reality because he couldn't speak anymore and he couldn't do the job that he was called to do anymore. He just had to focus. And for you and I, if we're going to overcome on one thing, that mindfulness, that intentional, uninterrupted time that directs us to the one thing. And returning to the one thing, for me, always has a funny way of taking us back to the one thing that really Silence reminds us of what really matters. What really, really matters. You know, this story ends in an absolutely beautiful way. We have this story where the angel comes and it makes Zechariah mute. And then we go on and we hear a few other things. We hear about a visitation of Mary to Elizabeth. And then finally, John is born. And when John is born on the eighth day, they take John to the temple for consecration, back to the space where uh, uh, Zechariah lost his voice. And when they come back into that space to consecrate John on that day and to name him, Elizabeth is the first to offer the name. And everybody's like, whoa, whoa, no, 
Elizabeth, Zechariah, come on, tell her, tell her it's not going to be that. That's not, his, that's not his name. That can't be his name. Nobody in your family has that name. Why would you do that? And it's in this moment that Zechariah's mouth is opened. And interestingly enough, Zechariah, as soon as he opens his mouth, he actually becomes the prophet, the messenger of God. In verse 67, it tells us very clearly that when he opens his mouth, he was filled with the Holy Spirit and he prophesied. Right? In the earlier part of this, Gabriel comes and speaks to Zechariah, the message of God. But in the latter part, Zechariah has found this meaning in his life and he becomes the mouthpiece of God. He's able to find meaning in his life and he expresses that meaning. The man who doubts God's messenger in verse 18, becoming God's messenger in verse 68. And here's what he says. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on all his people. He's redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us in the house of his servant, David. His waiting is not in vain. It's not in vain. God didn't forget his people. God hasn't forgotten us. God hasn't left us. A savior is coming. His hope is reborn. And Zechariah has moved out of that languishing and has become a participant in sharing the good news of God in this world. Zechariah gets to play a part in it. He goes on in verse 76 and 77. And you, he turns to John, little eight-day-old John. He says, and you, my child, you will be called a prophet of the Most High. I'm prophesying right now, but you will be a prophet your whole life for you will go before the Lord to prepare the way to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah has found meaning in his waiting. He's found meaning in this moment. There's meaningfulness to his life. Can I remind you today? There's meaning for your life. There's meaning for you even when it feels like the weight is too heavy, it's too hard. And you're living in that world of languishing. Even in seasons of waiting, in times of languishing where your joy is gone and your life seems to be aimless, there's still meaning for you. There's still meaning that you can live into. And Zechariah's story reminds us of this, that we all have meaning. Even these waters, they point us to that reality. You know, I invited us all at the end of the baptism today to say these special words over Eliza as we closed. It was these words right here. Through baptism, you are incorporated by the Holy Spirit into God's new creation. You are made to share in Christ's royal priesthood. Now, these words right here, they're words that we say throughout the centuries, really. We have said throughout the centuries. And they can either be rote words, memorized, repeated over and over again, or they can be a proclamation of meaning. And the way that each of you chose to open your mouths and offer those words is the way in which you chose to participate in being prophets of God in her life. To proclaim God's reality over her. To offer those words of meaning to her. And the same words that you would offer to her are words that are offered to you. That you are a participant in God's new creation. That you are made to share in Christ's royal priesthood. That you are able to stand under the weight of that meaning and to live every single day working with God in the world. And this is God's direction and declaration of meaning for you, that you are God's son or daughter, and you can live into that every single day. In seasons like the one that we're in, this long extended period of waiting, I know the struggling, uh, the struggle of waiting and realizing this hope. But as we languish, I want you to remember these three things. In seasons of languishing, we work on mastery, we focus on mindfulness, and we remember what matters. What matters is you. The 
way that God has chosen to work through you in this world for the transformation of the entire world. Would you stand with me and pray? Gracious God, we thank you so much for the way in which you choose to speak to us and to speak through us. We ask God today that you would continue to fill our hearts with hope. I know many of us stand in this room under the weight of that hope, just like Zechariah, who had been waiting for so long with unfulfilled expectations that it just seemed out of reach, seemed beyond him to think that anything would ever change. Seemed like he was languishing in the same way that we languish. God, I ask today that if we find ourselves in that space where life seems aimless, life seems like it's just lost its joy, that you would help us, help restore that flow in our life that's needed, where that we can realize the meaning that you have called upon each of us. Restore the work of our hands and help us focus on that for the good, not only of ourselves and our families, but for the good of the world. Father, we thank you for this, your blessing, now and always. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.